0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Language, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Weston, and today I'll be talking with John McWater about his 2018 book The Creole Debate. John McWater is Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. He has written academic books on Creole linguistics, including the book we'll be talking about today, but also a number of popular books on language, including The Power of Babel, and on black identity in the United States. He is a regular columnist for several US broadsheets, he's a two-time TED talker, and he has a weekly podcast dealing with issues related to language called Lexicon Valley, which is worth checking out if you're listening to new books in language. John McWater, thank you for making the time to talk today about your 2018 Cambridge University Press volume, The Creole Debate. What have you been up to lately?
1: Well, lately I've been doing all kinds of things, such as putting together that podcast for Slate, and in terms of writing about Creole languages other than The Creole Debate, I've been, as usual, writing various academic papers where I explore the idea that Creole languages are a special kind of language that are representative of the creation of new language from conditions of adversity. And it's a question that's interested me for basically a quarter of a century now. And it's come to my attention that a lot of people who study Creoles for a living, who find Creoles especially interesting, really don't believe and even find vaguely repulsive The idea that Creoles are what happens when a language has to be born again. They don't like the idea that we would say that Creoles are a kind of language in terms of how they're built. Their idea is that you only call a language a Creole based on its history, that history usually being that people who are socially subordinate in some way create a language via the mixture of their own language or languages with that of the people in power. But over the past about 15 years in particular, I've come to realize that a lot of very smart, serious people actually think that Creole languages are just hybrids in the same way as Romanian is a hybrid of Romance languages and Slavic languages mixed together, that Yiddish is a hybrid of German with elements of Slavic and Hebrew an idea that's increasingly influential in Creole studies and is beginning to seep out into the world of other linguists is that Creoles have been mislabeled as a kind of language at all, that they have no relationship to pidgin varieties, and that really Creoles, just like really every other language in the world, are mixtures, and that if you say anything different, you are at best a lousy linguist and at worst some sort of racist imperialist redux. I don't think that's true. And it's what a lot of my academic work is devoted to showing, as well as to the general idea that when a whole lot of adults learn a language very quickly, the result is a language that has a whole lot less of the grammatical clutter that older languages have, just because languages tend to accrete a whole lot more mess than any human being really needs to
0: communicate. I know you've written a whole book called Defining Creole, but can you give us a brief definition of a Creole language? Sure. A Creole, in my definition,
1: and if you had asked somebody 40 years ago, nobody would have argued, is what happens when adults who are past their critical acquisition phase, and so it's no longer easy to just pick up a language out of the air and master it natively. Adults, for one reason or another, are learning some other language, generally they have to learn it quickly, and they only learn some vocabulary and shards of grammar. Sometimes adults come together and do that on purpose, because they just need a language to trade or engage in some other temporary activity. That's called a pidgin, and nobody calls that a real language. What that is is a kind of lingo. But every now and then, human circumstances are such that a group of people may have to take that lingo and live in it. That was one of many unusual, not to mention barbaric things, about plantation slavery, for example. So you had slaves speaking extremely different, mutually unintelligible languages, who wound up in a plantation situation where they had to spend the rest of their lives. And there's this usually European language, and they learned it, but of course, nobody was giving them Rosetta Stone or something like that. They were picking up the vocabulary on the fly, And as far as the grammar went, they might get the very basics, but a lot of it they filled out with grammar from their own languages or the sorts of things that people tend to do when they're putting a language together from the ground up. And as a result, something that was a pigeon, not a real language, becomes a real language. You take those few hundred words and you make them into thousands of words in various ways. You take those shards of grammar and you get it to the point that you've got a grammatical system that it would take any human being a long time to truly master. Your language has nuances, your language has metaphor, but you've built it out of a pigeon. So, a Creole language is a language that started... As a pigeon, and then was built up into a new language. Now, my claim is that that new language is still identifiable as having been built up from a pigeon, even hundreds of years later, because most languages were not built up from pigeons and they've had a long, long time to basically get messed up. Creoles are less messed up in that way. Now, I have to be responsible and tell you that. A lot of my detractors these days will tell you that no, that's not what a Creole is. What they want us to say is that a Creole is what happens when there are a certain number of adults in an acquisitional situation and adults can't learn the language completely and so they end up not learning a lot of the detailed things about the language. But then their kids grow up and kids can learn those sorts of things. And there are some people around who speak a full version of the language. And so the result is a language where maybe some of the thorniest, most arbitrary things in the original language are gone, but nothing really dramatic happened, just like nothing really dramatic happened that made, say, modern English out of old English. So just, you know, a a kind of a close shave. And that there's no reason to call that a Creole unless you want to have a special name for languages created by black people amidst plantation slavery. So Salikoko Mufwene made that suggestion back in the 90s. But for people like this, the idea that a Creole language is a demonstrable descendant from a pigeon variety is a no-go. I disagree. I think that if you had, well, I know that if you had looked at a pigeon and Creole textbook, decades ago, nobody would have argued that Creoles come from pigeons. I think that we need to go back to that because it's what the facts suggest.
2: Yeah, so you just set out what you've called in the book the grand old idea of adults developing pigeon languages, which are then elaborated into Creoles by the next generation of children. And you've begun to say how that conception of Creole languages sets the scene for the book because uh, your position is that, that that leads to typologically distinct languages, whereas other Creolists, for example, Salico Comafuene, argue that it doesn't. And, and you're saying, in fact, that that's a political decision in a way, or that there's, that there's an improper influence of political correctness on denying the special status of Creoles. Yeah. One might wonder why, why focus on a synchronic characterization. Isn't, isn't that a political choice as well?
1: No, it is a perfectly empirical choice. I mean, if you're studying what you're presented with as a kind of language, and if you come into Creole studies as, you know, a happy 20-something puppy as I did, then naturally you're thinking, well, what are these? And you find that it's a bizarre subfield where people seem to almost pride themselves on not being able to agree on what a Creole even is. And really, there's no agreement whatsoever. And I don't think that's something to be proud of. And I think part of the reason that you have a group of brilliant people who are so comfortable not being able to explain what they've come together to a conference to study is because there's a reluctance to identify that if a language is born under the conditions that Creoles were born under, then it is inevitably going to be less something something else and something else than a language like Russian or Navajo. And I think anybody who is a linguist or an anthropologist, or really just about anybody who has any experience with two or three languages can see that Creoles are different in a certain way. And that is that they are lighter on the sorts of bells and whistles that make languages hard to learn. That doesn't mean they don't have any, but they really are lighter. And that's just empiricism, that's looking up and seeing that the sky is blue. The politics here are not mine. The politics are Mufuene's and Degraffes and Abos and Ansaldo's. And in the case of Ansaldo and DeGraff, the political aspect of it is naked. Mufuene is quieter about it. I don't know Abo well enough to say. But they are really uncomfortable with the idea of anybody implying that Creoles are lesser languages. And to them and I can I can meet them about halfway on this. They are worried that if somebody says, well, creoles are very low on inflectional morphology, well, given that a language like Latin or Greek or Russian is jangling with all that inflectional morphology and, you know, especially a layman thinks that that's what makes a language complicated and interesting. Well, the stress too much that Creoles have so much less of that can seem like you're saying Creoles aren't real languages. And of course, with layman, that really is exactly what they mean. And then I think there's also a an impulse that runs throughout academia and therefore throughout linguistics, which is to avoid dissing languages spoken by oppressed people. And one thing that linguists tend to think about is that it's easy for the layman to think that, for example, because Chinese doesn't have all the amo, amas, amat, etc., that Chinese, quote unquote, doesn't have grammar, that a language like Chinese or Vietnamese is exotic for not having all of those long tables of endings. So any linguist, including me, bristles a little bit at the idea that because a language doesn't have all those prefixes and suffixes, that it's anything-er than anything else. You, you want to be real careful because you know Vietnamese is a very, very complicated language, even though it doesn't have the endings. All of that said, all of that well taken, the politics is theirs. Because what they're doing is they are advocating for Creole languages in the guise of describing them. And the sad truth is that the kind of description that I'm talking about has nothing to do with disrespect. You would never know. And in their case, you wouldn't know because they have never read it. You would never know that I wrote a grammatical description of Saramachan where on every page, Saramacan Creole English spoken by descendants of runaway slaves in South America, you know, Creole of Creoles in so many ways. Every page is full of me showing how here's something complicated that you know hasn't been documented or that you wouldn't think about. Here's how Saramacan does this, that, and the other thing, and it has nothing to do with endings. It's all full of showing the intricacies of this language that nevertheless does not work anything like Portuguese or Latin. I've written that because it's a message that I think is very important to get across to the whole world, but because they all think that I'm such a sinister charlatan, they don't read my work, and as a result, they don't know that I've ever had anything like that to say. But the linguistics community in general cannot be misled in that way. And no, the politics are theirs. All four of those people exemplify a certain kind of political bias that interferes with empirical engagement with interesting things, and I think it needs to stop.
2: I think it's an interesting distinction you've made between the unsavouriness of suggesting that a language is is simple uh, in some way, and therefore that the people are somehow simple people on the one hand, and on the other hand, many linguists being beholden to a narrow definition of what constitutes complexity in language, which is morphological complexity and inflection. Mm -hmm. It seems like that latter one, anyway, is probably easy to just point out and knock down isn't it? I mean, in the Creole debate, you know, in the book, you you keep coming back to challenging crusty ideas in linguistics of which this is one, you know, and and syntactocentrism elsewhere. Mm -hmm. What's the response of somebody like Mofuene when you say, well, why are we placing so much uh, on on the superiority or the, you know, the elevated status of inflectional morphology?
1: (laughs) John, the answer, sadly, is none. And I'm not being recreational when I say this. Sali Kokomofwene has probably never read a single one of my articles from beginning to end. And if he has, he has never, in anything he's ever written given any indication of having actually engaged my work. I think Michelle de Graff has worked a little harder than that. Umberto Ansaldo, frankly, I think does not actually read other people's work at all. Abo is somewhere in between. I actually, I, I couldn't say what a thorough reader he is. But yes, I've been saying for 20 years now that inflectional morphology is not the measure of complexity. It is not the soul of complexity. It is not the heart my argument and yet you can read things that those people wrote last week and they're still accusing me of being somebody who just sits and counts inflections that's because they don't read my work and part of the reason that i wrote the creole debate is because they're hot shots And criticisms and worse of my work and that of Mikhail Parkval and Peter Bacher and like-minded people is not based on actually engaging with anything that we've actually written or said. And I can maybe bend over backwards and imagine that they feel that you can't draw sweet water from a foul well. And maybe they took a quick look at something I wrote, maybe a couple things I wrote 20 years ago, and they figure what good could come out of it. We've read all that we need to know. Maybe they just find it unpleasant. To read my work. But they figure they've got it. But the thing is, they just don't. And I mean, the whole syntactocentrism argument is crucial because here they have this Northeastern United States Chomskyian notion of what language is all about, which I think the scientific community is gradually realizing more every year is bankrupt in an awful lot of ways. It's a noble experiment that simply hasn't worked out. And yet, I'm the one who's accused of being Eurocentric. You know, here's this whole model where the human language faculty is supposedly generated according to what you would expect from a language like roughly Spanish or French or English or Polish. You know, that whole linguistics paradigm would be completely different if it had been invented in Thailand, for example. And yet I'm the one who supposedly is in love with my Latin and Greek and thinks that any language that isn't like that is somehow broken or exotic. And John, I swear to you that the debate is really less fine-grained and less diligent than you might think, because quite frankly, I have read almost all of their work. They don't read mine at all. It's unfair.
2: I hope that this podcast is gonna be a corrective to that picture that you've just painted in some way. You begin the introduction of the Creole debate discussing this golden age of Creole linguistics from the eighties to the mid nineties when Creoles were regarded as linguistically interesting, not just from a socio historical perspective, but also from the perspective of formal linguists. You know, that you've cast that kind of wider interest in Creoles as a golden age. So that was because Creoles were put forward as being at that point as being typologically distinct. Uh, can you say a bit more about what was in the air at the time. What were people like Bickerton proposing about Creoles? But also what was it like personally being a Creolist, being a young pup at that time um, (laughs) when suddenly you were working on a topic of very wide interest?
1: Well, yeah, back in those days, um, mine start in the 80s. But even before that, Creoles were supposed to be interesting first because Creole Continua, If you're, say, a Jamaican who can slide between standard English and a patois that's almost mutually unintelligible with it, it was supposed to be that Creoles were interesting in showing how much a human being's language competence can vary. That was something. Then, after Bickerton put forth his hypothesis about Creoles representing a bioprogram, well, the idea was that Creoles were language born again. So we were supposed to be interested in, and I was interested in these languages that might represent where language started and what language goes through as it moves along to becoming the, you know, interesting but useless mess that an old language like Navajo or Russian is. So how does it start? It was kind of like being a paleontologist, which is something that I wanted to be until rather late in my development. And sometimes these days, I wish I had actually gone ahead and done it. And the truth is that that really was interesting. But then here came first Mufwene. He's the person who first started cracking the plaster where I started noticing people saying things at conferences outside of Creole studies. And then DeGraff really cemented it. These people taught linguists that Creoles aren't interesting. So now a lot of linguists have learned, well, turns out Creoles don't come from pigeons because they've watched it being said by, in particular, these black men. And there's this idea in academia that has partly, you know, affected my career too, where you want to give the black person the benefit of the doubt. So here are these black Creole speakers saying that Creoles don't come from pigeons. A great many linguists are inclined to think, okay, they must be right and to try not to think too hard about it. I know that sounds kind of harsh. Maybe it is. It's also true. I'm sorry to say so. And so now many linguists don't think that Creoles are interesting at all. Everybody kind of nods, you know, especially people who were around in the 70s and 80s. It's become a kind of genuflection. Oh yeah, Creoles are neat. But if you really press them as to why they think Creoles are neat, if they couldn't say that Creoles represent a bio program and that they're supposed to be teaching us a little something about the birth of or the development of language, then why should they be interesting? If Creoles are no more interesting than Yiddish or Romanian in terms of their birth, There's no reason to study Creoles separately at all, except as products of plantation slavery in the middle centuries of the 20th century. And that is really anthropology. And so I really feel like I'm fighting for the continued existence of my field as an area of linguistics that people genuinely care about as such.
2: So you were entering or or sort of nascent in this field, and you saw black academics saying things that you felt were politically unsavory. Was that kind of constitutive in your your later writing on black politics in America or
1: no, no, absolutely unrelated. Actually, when I came into Creole Studies, it was a white person who was saying things that I found politically unsavory. Many people would be surprised to know that I started out in Creole Studies battling Derek Bickerton because his version of the bio program hypothesis I thought was too extreme. He was denying for example, that structures from the African languages that Creole's creators spoke had anything to do with the grammars of the Creoles themselves. And I thought that was empirically ridiculous and also sociopolitically a little bit annoying, but mostly empirically. And I battled against that. I was welcomed with open arms then. I was the frisky young black guy who was saying the right thing. And then what I saw was that certain figures now had this new idea that there was no such thing as a Creole at all. Some of this is at least diagonally in response to Bickerton, as a matter of fact. Now, you know something, John, this is the truth. And I would forgive anybody who thought that I was just saying this now to sound innocent or less hostile or something like that. But the fact that Mufuene, De Abo Abou, and Ansaldo are part of what is now called the social justice warrior movement in academia is not something that occurred to me until actually about a year ago. I've thought of them just as individuals taking over Creole studies with a theory that I think is empirically mistaken, and I didn't think of them as symptomatic of anything. So yes, I've written about race issues in America, and I just said here that it is partly the color of Sally Coco Mufuene and Michelle de DeGraff's skin, and they're having foreign accents that makes people be relatively uncritical of their work. And it's certainly true. You know, I didn't really think of that until really I was finished with the Creole debate, because I think of my academic life as completely separate from my life as a pundit about race issues in the United States. But yes, these things are somewhat akin. I came in As the black guy saying the right thing, believe it or not, then the field started shifting underneath me and I gradually started to realize, goodness gracious, most of the people who are Creolists around me, these people who I've been meeting at conferences, all of them actually do think that there's no such thing as a Creole. And I think they're wrong. And I'm certainly dismayed to see other linguists think that because pretty soon no one is going to find Creoles genuinely interesting. But no, the political story for me is very diagonal. And when I wrote the Creole debate, I was not thinking I must quash these social justice warriors. I was thinking of it as those four eccentric individuals. Now I realize, maybe as I'm getting a little older, that they are symptomatic of something larger. I don't know why I didn't think of it that way 10
2: years ago, but I was just too busy. I wanted to come back to what Bickerton was saying, his bioprogram. Can you explain a little bit about what he was on about with the bioprogram?
1: <laughs> I love it's It's different in British than American. What he was on about. <laughs> in America, it sounds vaguely dismissive, and frankly, that works perfectly. What was he on about? Um, Bickerton, Bickerton was a genius. He actually passed away recently. And I frankly don't think he was a very nice man. He was not nice to me, but I really did admire his mind. And his idea was that there's a reason that Creole languages seem to be so similar to one another in so many ways. And they're similar in ways which, you know, really what he meant was a lot of what I have come to mean, and I'm very much in his debt in this way, they seem less busy than most older languages. And more to the point, there are certain structures that seem to come up again and again, and that was more his bailiwick than mine. But he was saying, why does any Creole language to encode tense and aspect mostly have these pre-verbal, as it's often called particles, really more technically they tend to be clitics, to indicate not just tense and aspect in general, but So often there's something that's a past marker, something that combines both future and irrealis, and then there's something that's not a present marker, but specifically a progressive marker, Why are those always so similar? And of course, you know, there are differences from Creole to Creole, but there's so many different things that those particles could do, as you can see from what particles like that do in, say, Mandarin Chinese. But in Creole languages, it always seems to cluster around the same three or four things. And he had various other things that seemed to pop up in too many Creoles for it to be an accident. His idea was that children are not exposed to any kind of coherent linguistic input, and as a result, they end up expressing language in its original, purest purest form as it's expressed genetically in our brains. And all this dovetailed beautifully with the then burgeoning idea of Noam Chomsky and the gang, that there's something called universal grammar that operates on the basis of certain underlying principles expressed in certain alternating parameters. This was all really neat stuff. And Bickerton came in and was arguing that Creoles show the default setting of this principles and parameters mechanism. So you have to go to Hawaii or Suriname to see what our language specification actually is. And his idea was that actual other languages that aren't so new, that have been around for millennia, they've departed. From this bio program, from this initial prototype, because of how languages morph along often in random ways, because culture gunks up the basic semantics and all sorts of things. Pickerton called it the bric a brac, and he was saying that Creoles don't have as much bric a brac, which they certainly don't. That was The most exciting idea that anybody had ever proposed in Creole studies. And I would say even today that it still was. He once actually had the nerve to tell me this is, this was unprovoked. He was very competitive. He said, I'm the alpha baboon up on top of the tree and you're never going to get up past me. I had the great idea. And you know what? You know, as obnoxious as that was, he was kind of right. The idea that Creoles represent where language starts, not exactly where language starts, but they're a lot closer to it than Hindi or Turkish. They're where language starts and that they, in a way, allow us to see what it's like to peel away the layers of the onion. That's neat. And he was really onto something and he expressed himself brilliantly well. So that's what he was, he was on about. And that was the big deal when I came into the field, it was also very fashionable to try to knock him down. And it wasn't hard because like many people who are as brilliant as he was, he pushed his idea a little too hard. But we need that in order to actually get real discussions going.
2: Well, yeah, you've painted quite an unsavoury picture of a man anyway. Uh, <laughs> you call this book a rather odd monograph in the acknowledgement. And I wonder if that's just a self-deprecating quip or whether it's because you're writing it with a couple of what you might call odd aims, like this kind of criticism of the politicisation of Creole linguistics on the one hand, and the idea of rehabilitating Creoles. Mm-hmm. You know, Maybe it's kind of a bit unusual to write a monograph saying, no, the Creoles are worth studying and this is why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, is that what... You had in mind with that term or was what were you doing?
1: (laughs) Well, I think it's an odd monograph because it really is about me showing why four Creolists are wrong. Mm. That's really all it's about. It is not a book addressing the political issues surrounding all this in any particularly substantial way, which is what I think many people would assume it was about. I'm saying these four people whose ideas I think are acquiring disproportionate influence, are empirically mistaken. It's easy to miss that, and I'm going to tell you why. And one reason it's called odd is I am fundamentally uncomfortable with writing an entire book Devoted to tearing apart other people. It's not really my style. I know how it feels to read other people doing things like that, where after about 20 pages, even if you agree with them, the tone puts you off. You're waiting for them to say something positive. You can't help getting the feeling that they just think they're smarter than everybody else, as I probably sound right now. It is a very dangerous kind of rhetoric. I learned early on in my career, no matter how cocky you're feeling, this included, you know, the first time I wrote against Bickerton, no matter how cocky you're feeling, no matter how much fun it is to be the smarty pants, use that tone in small doses because it alienates even the people who are in your corner. Mm-hmm. And so writing that book was, was was dicey, but I had to write it because if I didn't write it, then people were going to keep believing, or at least I wouldn't have done anything to try to address people continuing to believe, that these people's ideas and their, frankly, unceasing and sometimes virtually ad hominem criticism of me is correct. And I just can't allow it. The reason that I'm a scholar is because I want to find the truth. And I don't think that these people are onto the truth the way they imply. But as I said, there's a certain strange, tacit power and they're saying the things that they do in the venues that they do. And I was beginning to think that Pigeon and Creole studies is beginning to look like a complete waste of time, although that's not their that's not their express intent, but that's the result of accepting the sorts of views that they're putting forth. So yeah, it's an odd book. I still feel bad that I had to sit there and write those things about other people's work. I wouldn't like to read a chapter about myself written in that vein, even if it was correct. I suspect I'm going to in two or three years now that I've written that book. But that isn't that isn't what I do. You know, I think there are some people who think of me as a person who spends a lot of time dissing other people, especially in my pundit career. If I died and somebody took a look at the body of my journalistic work, they'd be surprised at how little I rip apart other individuals. I only do it if it's absolutely necessary. And I feel that way here too, but it had to be, it had to be done. I've just, I've, I've had enough. So yeah, that's why I thought of it as an odd book.
2: Uh, I'd like to move on to the to the book itself now. So, you um, so the, uh, you have chapters on Creole exceptionalism, Creolization as language mixture, and Creolization as second language acquisition. So, these are kind of how you characterize different treatments of what Creoles are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I'd like to move on to talk about your chapter on complexity in language, which you've already mm-hmm. touched on. So, can can you give us some sense of how you develop your discussion of Creole exceptionalism in in chapter one?
1: Yeah. Creoles are different. And one asks, well, how? You know, Can you actually spell it out? And I've tried to in my work. And one of those ideas is that there are some languages that lack three things together. One of them is having paradigms of inflections. So, for example, conjugational suffixes and verb classes. Another one is having tone the way Chinese has it, where just a tone makes the difference between one meaning and another, or one grammatical category and another. Then also there is opaque derivation, and by that I mean you combine two words, or a word and an affix, And the result is a new word that you wouldn't predict from what the meaning of the two original elements are. And so understand in English is a great example. What are you standing under? How is it standing? We don't know. We know that it's composed of under and stand. But the meaning, which is to comprehend, to get, to grasp, has nothing to do with under or stand. There are languages that don't have understands, that aren't tonal, and don't have the kind of inflection that makes Latin hard to learn. I claim that any language like that is one that was born relatively recently of a pigeon, of a language that certainly doesn't have anything like those things because it isn't a language. If a pigeon doesn't have amo, amas, amat, a pigeon certainly isn't tonal. And in a pigeon, you don't have things like understand. Things like that take a while to develop. So I said that if you have a language like that, then it's Derived from a pigeon, and I said that. Look at you know any language you can think of like that; it's a creole. There, now, creolization happens in degrees, and so for any number of reasons—what languages a language has been in contact with, whether or not the language that provided the words has stuck around—all sorts of reasons—a creole language can depart from that exact three-part prototype that I talked about. However, creoles that have existed in isolation from the language that gave them their words and have just been allowed to develop by themselves, they do exemplify that prototype quite nicely. And I first said that in 1997, and Creolis instantly thought that it was a highly unsavory idea. And these days, you often read that the prototype has been refuted, that exceptions have been presented. And you know, the funny thing is, there've been none presented. Now, of course, people have tried, But just as, of course, I have written and said why these attempts did not go through, I have reprinted my responses. They're out there, and they're unread. And so there are people who continue, many very serious-minded Creolists who think, well, that got knocked down. No, it didn't. And the fact remains that a great many of the people who say, well, there are exceptions to the prototype. If you just ask them, just, you know, once they finish talking, ask them, really? Oh, really? That got knocked down? What were the languages? Tell me. Hmm. What were the, what are the older languages that have the prototype features? Watch their face. And that is literally the state of the art. So I thought that that needed to be shown in this book because a lot of people honestly don't know it. And you know, you'll see this sort of thing on Wikipedia. Yes, I've looked and I've tried to correct it. And the next day it's corrected back. I know who's doing it. And so I have to have something where you can't fix it. And that's called a book because those people can't go and change what's in the books. So that's one of my ideas as to what a Creole actually is. And that means that Creoles are exceptional, however you want to take that word, because there's no such thing. I'm confidently saying after 21 years, there's no such thing as an older language that combines those three features.
2: Do you have a kind of explanation about why those three features in particular might co-locate?
1: Yeah, it's really, they're very natural. I mean, you would expect... if a language is born from a pigeon, there might be something about sound that was predictable. And that's what the tone part is. Tones are something that emerge usually through consonants wearing away and leaving the tones behind, kind of like the Cheshire cat disappears and leaves only his smile. Well, it just takes time. You know, the cat has to sit there for a while before it learns that trick, so to speak. And then with morphology, well, you get endings from what start as free morphemes that become bound and become affixes. Well, that means that there has to be an initial stage when there is no bounded morphology and everything is still free, which means that if you're going to get whole paradigms of affixes where you've got all this stuff marking person and number, not to mention things like gender, it just takes time. If you're going to start as a pigeon, where by definition those things aren't there, then check up on that language that develops from the pigeon 500 years later, and it's still not going to have amo, amas, amat. It's still not going to make the sun a boy and the moon a girl. Those things take time. And then there's the semantics. There's meaning. Once you've got a full language, then you can convey any human thought, certainly. You've got the meaning of natural human language. But if you're going to talk about two words coming together like understand— Where presumably, at first, that made sense. Maybe there was some metaphor about how people had to come together under a tree to achieve some sort of mutual understanding or something like that. The thing is, once people are no longer using the tree, but they're using the same word, you have that kind of opacity happening. But that kind of opacity takes place over time. No group of people would on purpose say, let's take the word under and let's take the word stand and have that mean to grasp or to get. People have you know, short lives. There's no reason to do that. That opacity arrives gradually and imperceptibly over time. So all three of those things are things you would predict as the way a language would be if it was a pigeon not too long ago, even if now it's very much a real language. Now, some people would say, no, those are just three arbitrary features. They'll still say it, but that's because they haven't read my explaining what I just said to you, which I've been doing for 20 years.
2: So these three features are features of young languages, essentially.
1: Almost, but not all new languages, because languages can become new in different ways. Two languages might come together and the result will be a language with verbs from one language and nouns from the other, with the verbs and the nouns having all the endings and nightmarish stuff that they had in the original languages. That's a kind of language called an intertwined language. So there are different ways that languages might come together and create new ones. One of those ways is that you get a pigeon that develops into a new language. That's one kind of new language. Now, Umberto Ansaldo has actually misinterpreted us as saying that any new language is going to come out like Saramakin, But that's a straw man because there are new languages emerging all the time that don't. It's the ones that come from pigeons. So anyway, just wanted to clarify, but go ahead.
2: So this is a kind of time limited definition, this this set of features, uh, but plus this extra stipulation of having originated as a pigeon. So then you've got a pigeon step followed by a limited amount of time. Those two things together will in all cases therefore lead to a language that lacks inflection tone and lexicalization yes okay and then uh you also in chapter two talk about Mufwene's feature pool model of creolization mm-hmm. um can can you talk a bit about the criticisms you bring up there as well
1: yeah basically for a long time now Mufwene has been saying that a creole is just a mixture of features from the languages that came into contact. And that our idea that, say, Haitian Creole has almost no inflection at all makes it exotic is not true because, well, colloquial French is actually a language without nearly as much inflection as the written language has. Well, you know, especially vernacular English is not really the most inflected language in the world. And so when French came together with For example, a totally Chinese-style analytic language, like many languages spoken in Ghana and Togo and Nigeria. Well, of course, then, the result was a language that is analytic, but not because it's exotic, but because analyticity was typical of the languages in the context. And he uses a very narrow range of Creoles, frankly. I don't think it's deliberate. I think that he's a busy man. He likes administration in a way that I don't. And I've never said this publicly before, but I'm in a mood today. I think that as time has gone by, he has had less time to keep up with literature. And so he uses a range of Creoles that's representative roughly of how people thought about these things in about 1985. And his idea, therefore, is that if you look at any Creole, you're just going to see that they are the result of languages mixing together. Now, that would mean that all the people who have thought of plantation creoles as exotic, as an interesting kind of language, as a bio program, as a prototype, have been mistaken. And you might even say that the reason that we've been so ready to see these languages this way is because there's a part of us that looks down on black people. In my case, it would be an interesting charge, given that I am black myself. But of course, maybe I'm self-hating. Who knows? It's been said. So we're all racists and we need to be corrected. The simple fact is that he's wrong. What he's saying about Creole languages doesn't add up in terms of what the original languages were like and what a great many Creoles were like. And so the example that I stress is Palencaro Creole Spanish spoken in Colombia, where there are really only two languages of note. There's Spanish, which, you know, is inflected to death. And there's Kikongo, which is a Bantu language, which is more inflected than Spanish. Speakers of those two languages came together and created Palenquero which is a largely analytic language, just like any Creole is. Now, the problem is this, and a lot of you may find it hard to believe that it really is this simple. Funny doesn't address Palenquero It's just not there. It's as if that language didn't exist. And I could make the same point with any number of other Creoles that just don't figure in these very long books that he's written and these very lengthy articles. And he gives these keynote talks all over the world. But nobody knows that what he's talking about is directly contradicted by reams and reams of data from other Creoles. Now, I tried to get that across in a very civil way, column that I wrote in the Journal of Pidgin and Creole Languages some years ago, and Salikoko Mufwene's response was basically to yell at me for about 18 pages and to imply that there's something wrong with me socially, but not answering my actual questions. And I actually said at one conference around that time, if I don't get a coherent answer to the points that I'm bringing up, after a few years, I'm going to take it to the world. And that is exactly what happened.
2: Um, in chapter three, uh, you investigate whether creolization is, is just second language acquisition. And to do this, you develop a characterization of de DeGraff's theory of creoles, which you call parameters periphery and functional categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you say a bit about what that means and, what, and how you criticize it?
1: Yeah, de DeGraff is a whole other kettle of fish. DeGraff's idea is harder to summarize because he, he, he's a, a very prolix writer. And for some reason, he thinks that the way that you write linguistics is to write more like Flaubert or Foucault than like Chomsky or Lakoff, that you don't have a whole lot of linguistic examples. You just have a lot of bellatristic fulminations. But to pick through all of it, what DeGraff is saying is, I guess I can put it for a general audience this way. He's saying that French Creoles are basically the French that we English speakers end up speaking if we're pretty good but imperfect students of French in the classroom. So... Imagine if we're taking French for the first time and you check up on us and maybe, you know, we're pretty good students, check up on us in maybe two years and, you know, we're making a lot of gender mistakes and sometimes we're just kind of not using gender at all. We're going to have simplified the verbal system considerably in many ways. We might not be doing the subjunctive because from English that seems kind of odd anyway. There are going to be all sorts of things we do that kind of unravel the language, So we're going to be speaking this kind of second language French. However, it's a French that would be pretty much recognizable to an actual French speaker. It's a French that certainly has grammar of all sorts. And really, there's a very short step from Mademoiselle Teacher's native French to this French that we're all speaking among ourselves when she makes us do that as kind of an exercise while she goes out and gets a drink of water. His idea is that Creoles are not as unlike their lexifier languages, as we've often been told. And this dovetails with a whole Francophone tradition that came before him that usefully stressed that it's easy to think that Creoles are less like the European languages that usually gave birth to them when you don't consider orthographical tradition in the older languages, when you don't consider what these languages are often like in their colloquial as opposed to their highly elaborified standard varieties. Interesting points in themselves. But with the graph, once again, you wind up with this artificially narrow perspective, where he's making all these claims on the basis of Haitian Creole as if it can stand as a stand-in for the dozens of other Creoles in the world, when in fact, all of the French Creoles are indeed closer to French than, say, Saramacan is close to English. Or say, Pisin out in Oceania is close to English. The French Creoles are especially close to French because they've always been spoken in a diglossic relationship with French. So, are they so close to French that they don't qualify as a separate language? I frankly think that most Haitians would disagree with his analysis about Haitian, Creole, etc. He's exaggerating. However, he's not crazy. He is making a point. But the problem is that Michel de Graff doesn't know that much about creoles in general. And I hate to put it that way, because it's the sort of thing I don't like to put out in public. But because people are beginning to listen to him, I have to say it. He is a theoretical syntactician. What he knows about is Chomskyese. That's where he started. And I don't get the feeling he's terribly interested in creoles as a class of language, except as something that he can defend from what he perceives as racist dismissal. And so what this means is that he'll say all these things about Haitian, and I think partly because of the generative tradition, his idea is that deep knowledge of one language can stand in for talking about all other languages because all languages are fundamentally based on the same grammar. But you know what? They're not. And things that he says about Haitian Creole are batshit crazy if you tried to say them about Sranang and English, if you try to say them about the unfortunately named Neher Hollands and Dutch. In other words, deep creoles and their lexifier languages. So basically what he's saying is it's like he's a biologist and he's got this squirrel and he's making it seem like things that squirrels do are representative of all mammals. And then somebody says, well, I have a seal. And somebody else says, I've got a cat. And somebody else says, look at this elephant. And he says, No, I know a whole lot about squirrels. You know, all these animals have basically the same skeleton. And so forget about the elephant, forget about your cat. Let's talk about the squirrel. As we all know, that would be lousy biology. And what he's doing with Haitian Creole is lousy linguistics.
2: This is a similar argument that you had, I mean, a criticism that you had of Mufwane about being a bit empirically blinkered and missing some of the wider empirical fruit out there to examine. Mm-hmm. But you also criticized DeGraff for being syntactocentric so you think he's he's making that overgeneralization because he's in to universal grammar and therefore can make wild generalizations from a small amount of data without worrying about it.
1: Yes, and I wish that his intelligence were applied to a more realistic view of what a language is. DeGraff came originally from computer science and then predictably he came into language with a perspective that was based on the Chomskyan ideas. And what's worse is he came in when all of it was switching over into minimalism, which I find especially anti empirical. But that's what he does. And so, in a way, talk about skeletons. He really is. I mean, if you want to say that syntax is the skeleton of language, and I think that's risky, but what he's doing is proposing a mammalogy based just on the skeletons of these animals, but not their musculature, not their organs, and not their behavior. And so to take a quick example, you can say that, well, this African language has serial verbs, and, well, this Creole has serial verbs, And therefore, there's nothing to be said about a Creole. The Creole is just taking its cue from this one of its source languages. That's what all these these guys would say. But no, it's also, what do the serial verbs mean? It's not only whether or not you can draw trees where you show that serial verbs are part of the syntax of both languages. What about, say, the compositionality of the serial verbs semantically? And so, for example, if the African language says that you can take go something and that's how you say that you you bring something to somebody you take go to your mother okay well any language that has serial verbs will do that but serial verbs also get very idiomatic and so for example in one west african language called fongbe one way to say repair to fix something is do have You put do and have together, and it means repair. Who would think of that? Who knows why? You could maybe trace it back. That, in the modern language, is equivalent to understand. I'm going to do have it, and that means that you're going to fix it all up wild. That is just completely opaque. There is no do have in the Creoles. They don't take that kind because that kind of opacity is not something you use when you start out as a pigeon. You might have serial verbs. You're not going to have any do have. Now, if all you are is a syntactician, you're going to miss that. Or if you see it, I'm going to be kind and imagine that these people have actually read me when I said this sort of thing, although I'll just bet they haven't. You read it, and you're not interested. It's not what you do. You don't care about non-compositionality. You care about move alpha. You care about head movement. You care about phases. And so you end up missing, unfortunately, something that I do think is a crucial difference between, say, a Saramakin and a language like Fongbei. And that's part of the problem we have here, that this syntactocentrism, as opposed to thinking of language as generated from semantics up, which is what I think, ends up leading you to find a lot of what creoles are as either uninteresting or it leads you to actually be able to pretend that it's non-existent.
2: It won't do. You devote chapter four to talking about complexity in Creoles. And we've already talked about this a little bit. But can you just fill in a bit more about what you say in, in chapter four with regard to complexity in Creoles?
1: Yeah, complexity is one of those things. Um, I, I try not to push too hard on it in the book because, you know, really, at the end of the day, I'm not sure how amenable it is to numbers, to binary contrasts, and there's especially a fashion in linguistics in general these days that in order to make a real point, you have to make it with numbers, and I don't think complexity could ever do that in a way that would satisfy any representative number of people. However, that doesn't mean that it isn't real. And basically, you can, I mean, this is my metric, other people have used others, they're probably better, but you can take complexity and make it a matter of three basic contrasts. I say that complexity can be a matter of what I call over as in giving, marking, to certain fine-grained aspects of life that a language can do without. One of them, for example, would be grammatical gender. You you might want to divide things into that many different classes, most of them irregular, et cetera, but you might not. Or languages differ in terms of which aspects of tense or which aspects of aspect. They divide things up into over-specification. Then there's structural elaboration, as in how many rules it takes to get a certain something done. So, some languages' morphophonemics are much more elaborate than other languages. If you've got something like ergativity, then exactly where the ergativity splits, you know, you have to decide where that's gonna be. In terms of um, various syntactic movement processes, how much movement do you need which elements are going to do the movement and for what reason where do your wh words sit what sorts of case changes might you have to make in order to use a particular wh word etc oh th- th- this kind of structural elaboration it differs from language to language and in some languages there's simply more of it than in others and then finally irregularity and i don't think i need to specify except that many languages can have a great deal more irregularity than we can even imagine from the regular verbs in romance languages. They're languages where there is essentially no such thing as a regular plural rule, unless you bring in some new word. But basically, every noun, you just have to know what its plural is. Same thing with verb forms in many Athabascan languages, where every verb just comes in different forms depending on what tense or aspect you're using. And for every single verb, you really just have to know. It doesn't fall into groups. You just have to know. Languages vary. And I say that Creoles have less over-specification, structural elaboration, and irregularity than older languages because those things only creep in over time and a pigeon has almost none of them. And I think that, you know, really... There are things you can point out. You can describe one one Creole and one older language and explain the difference. But of course, there's always somebody who's gonna say, yeah, but suppose there's some older language where you couldn't find these things. And to the extent that nobody can account for all 7,000 languages, it kind of hits a wall. And I think many people think that you could choose a Creole that suddenly would be as complex in those ways as Polish. Although when it comes to that, I can say with confidence that you couldn't. But really, it just comes down to something pretty, pretty easy. If you're learning a Creole, you can get the basics pretty quickly, much more quickly than you can any of its source languages, and this is about much more than inflectional morphology. A Creole grammar, the grammatical description, tends to be physically thinner than grammatical descriptions of older languages. And that's not only because of real-world factors, such as you know what the budget for the Creole grammar might be. Because frankly, at this point, the main publishers are quite anxious to publish lengthy grammars of Creole languages. And the fact that the grammars tend to be relatively short, you don't want to say that it's the incompetence of the linguists. Some people might want to say it about me and Saramakam, but I don't think anybody would want to say it about anybody else. They're shorter because there's less to describe. If you're trying to describe how Navajo works, if you're trying to describe how Arabic works, if you're trying to describe how Japanese works, you need more space than you do to describe how Haitian Creole works. And that's because these languages aren't uncomplex, but they're less complex than older languages. And it's funny, amidst Creolists, I never am quite sure why this is considered so counterintuitive. Sometimes I think, is it that They are only familiar with English and Romance languages, but that's not true because the ones who know German and Dutch are just as opposed to the idea. And the German ones are people who are using you know, three senselessly applied genders and have all kinds of heterogeneous word order. They must understand that German in those ways is more complicated than English, which they always seem to speak better than me. And yet they resist this idea that Creoles could possibly be less complex than anything. Sometimes I think if you really think all languages are equally complex, you don't know Russian. And I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know because a lot of them know a lot more about many aspects of linguistics than I do. And I'm, that's believe me, that's not false modesty. But when it comes to the languages of the world, sometimes I wonder whether a lot of them are really aware of what the languages of the world are like in kind of flying a plane around the world, you know, I, I find myself thinking of Cree and Navajo, and sometimes I think they're only thinking of German and French, and maybe that's part of why they they find the idea so ridiculous. I find that other linguists understand that more intuitively, even if they don't want to speak against, you know, Jesus Mufwene and God de Graf. they know that you know the Ethiopian language that they study is more complicated than Cape Verdean creole but yeah you know, within the field i assume i will make no headway on that whatsoever but i know in my gut like in terms of the creole prototype i know because of simple fact in terms of the complexity i know in my gut that i am not crazy but I have given up on pushing the point too hard because you know, I feel like I've made my case and I try to summarize that case that I've made in chapter four of the
2: book. You've written about Warfianism, and I wonder if there's some kind of uh, background linkage between l- linguistic complexity and, and mental complexity. You know, is it, is it that obvious that there's a resistance to characterizing languages in, in these terms because it could imply that the people themselves are less complex?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that to say, well, these are less complex languages. Many people are thinking, well, there's a short step from there to saying that these are simple thinking people. And the truth is that not thinking too much about Creoles, I was thinking some about Creoles, but I not think too much about Creoles. I have written a whole critique of warfianism because in fetishizing this idea that little distinctions that your language connotes mean that you're thinking about those things more than other people, that leaves speakers of languages like Saramacan potentially looking kind of dim, because Creole languages are new and therefore do not tend to mark things like that as obligatorily or as finely as many older languages do. So it worries me a bit in that way. But that means that I can also understand a certain discomfort that many Creolists have when you say, look at the things that this language doesn't mark. And as far as I'm concerned, I have argued, you know, having done an end run from a completely different direction because of different kinds of interests of mine, in saying that languages are not more sophisticated in that if they have all those endings, it means that their speakers are thinking about more things. I think that there's a, there's a All of that is a real hoax. The book that I wrote along those lines was called The Language Hoax, and I meant it. But, you know, of course, the people who disagree with me about Creoles, I don't expect them to have read every book anybody has ever written. They don't know that I wrote The Language Hoax. So the argument continues. But yes, yeah, Warfianism does relate to this in
2: that way. You, know, you talked about overspecification, structural elaboration, and ir- irregularity. Yeah. Are those three definitional subcategories of complexity mm-hmm. special in some way, or, or is there an arbitrariness in selecting which ones t- to focus on? Because presumably, mm-hmm. your position is basically that somebody speaking what would be, in those terms, a less complex language is still capable of having a co- perfectly complex conversation and complex thinking and so on.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the truth is the overlap between the prototype idea and the complexity idea is highly partial. I mean, inflection, yeah, inflection does become complex because inflection conditions morphophonemic distortions and irregularities. And so, you know, once you get beyond the agglutinative stage, inflection can be complex, although it isn't complex just in itself. But tone, tone isn't complex. It's a very normal thing to happen in languages. And if you're distinguishing words via tone as opposed to via two consonants, or even just in addition, that doesn't make it more complex. It just kind of is. And opaque derivation isn't complex. There's something complex about the fact that under and stand put together mean understand. We just use it as an element of meaning with a particular label and think after the fact, isn't it odd that under and stand mean those things? All theories suggest that we basically generate them together. That's the nature of diffusion, And so the prototype is not really about complexity. It can seem like it. And talk about Eurocentric, I think, not only do some people look at the inflection part and think, oh, complexity, but they look at the tone. And because tone is exotic to a European, I think many European language speakers, including English language speakers, think, oh, something complicated like tones. But yes, people who speak tonal languages don't think of it as complex, and it isn't. And the derivation, I think, almost everybody seems to think that somehow doesn't matter. That's kind of the dirty little third one, and you can't find it in the index of the grammar. So a lot of people think that doesn't matter at all. But the inflection and the tone I think look complex but no no it, it's mostly the inflection that is potentially complex but when it comes to whether I was arbitrary in choosing those three things my question is simply okay name me a language that has no paradigmatic inflection no contrast of tone and no understands name it and if you can't name it then you have to admit that I'm not out of my mind maybe the fact that you can't name one and neither can he or she, and neither has anybody since the Clinton administration. Maybe the fact that you guys can't give me an exception is an indication that that isn't an arbitrary group of things. Maybe it might mean that I'm right. That is my answer to that question, really.
2: The last uh, couple of chapters, chapter five and six, you talk about how some of the work you've been criticizing by these four scholars, you characterize it as having fallen short of accepted scientific standards in terms of syntactocentrism and in terms of the kind of political coloring of of the discourse. Do you want to just say a remark about what you do in chapters five and six that adds to what we've already discussed um, in those two areas?
1: Sure. I think that really what it comes down to in those Envoi chapters, as I call them, is this. I think that when I have proposed that Creoles are a kind of language, that idea has been subjected to good, healthy criticism, and that's the way that it should be. However, I think that Creolists and linguists in general have not submitted the work of Mufuene, De Graff, Abo, or Ansaldo to the equivalent kind of criticism. Their work is less critiqued than simply accepted. And part of it is because, frankly, this is not true of Abo, but the other three tend to publish only in anthologies where refereeing is very light. They tend not to submit to journals where you're going to have three or four referees really beat you up. And everybody knows that in linguistics, you know, it's easier to get your stuff into anthologies than to submit it to journals. Quite frankly, I try to submit a certain amount of my work to journals because I want to be beaten up. I want want to make my arguments as strong as they possibly can be. They tend to evade that. And so that's part of why their work is just accepted. But then in general, once their work is there, there could be some actual critical reception of their work. But so for example, something that I am told sometimes and this is this is hardly insane is that I'm not being precise enough in what I identify as grammatical categories that when I'm talking about what features that you include when you decide what is prototypical or not or what is complex or not, I'm not being precise enough. For example, the whole idea that there's a difference between a free morpheme and an affix is coming under a kind of onslaught. And so what do I mean by affix as opposed to clitic? What do I mean by free versus bound? These can be, and often are, really legitimate questions. But Fuene is never asked what he means by a feature, you know, feature pool, when has anybody ever said, this makes no sense unless he specifies what a feature is? So Michel de Graff criticizes me for not having an explicit grammatical model. And what he means by that is that I don't work in minimalism, HPSG, relational grammar, or something like that. But nobody asked what model of grammar Koko Mofuene means when he says feature. Nobody asked the question at all. Frankly, they should. The ideas of the people who I wrote about are simply received. And the reason is, I think, underlyingly because of the socio-political aspects of things. But that's not what the book is about. The book is about simply the facts. And the book tries to outline that a lot of the things that those people are saying with such confidence have never really been submitted to serious critique. Some of them have submitted to places that offered them serious review and withdrew their pieces rather than revising them in view the critique. I'm not going to say who those people were, but I know of many such stories. So that means that when you're reading these things, it hasn't gone through the mill. Those people haven't been beaten up. And that is not the way linguistic inquiry is supposed to go. We're all supposed to be beaten up. So I'm happy to be beaten on. I've gotten used to it. I almost enjoy it. But it's time to start submitting those other people's work to actual critical analysis. And I beseech people who are interested in linguistics not to just drink in this idea that Creoles don't come from pigeons, because it simply hasn't been demonstrated with the kind of empirical rigor that you as a linguist would expect based on how things probably go within your subfield.
2: Uh, And at the end of chapter six, you talk about your vision of of a Creole Studies That Matters, what that might look like um, on a kind of more positive (laughs) (laughs) note. So I just wondered if you could say a bit about what what Creole Studies That Matters does look like.
1: Oh, yeah. Basically... There are all sorts of directions people might go. And if, if I've got you right, the section you're referring to is one where I really wrote about various things that I find interesting that I would like to see investigated if people would admit that Creoles are a kind of language. But in general, I think that we need a kind of language contact typology where people are not uncomfortable with allowing that Creoles are on one end of a cline of language contact that involves abbreviation of linguistic, yes, complexity as the result of the ravages of adult acquisition. And for those who aren't comfortable with complexity, then just using the prototype configuration as a useful metric for what a language may have been through. Because if you can use something like that, then there are all sorts of ways that Creole studies could connect meaningfully with people studying language contact, with second language acquisition, language change, and even anthropology in really useful ways. Instead, I see things like somebody is studying how there's a kind of highly grammatically streamlined Danish being spoken by children of immigrants in cities like Copenhagen. And it's, she, it's obvious that what she sees is simplification of the grammar. And she's been reading up on pigeons and creoles and trying to get a sense of what she sees. But she's come up in an era when people like de Graaf and Mufwene are writing that she, with her white self, is a racist if she thinks that simplification has anything serious to do with what's going on in a contact language. And so she's giving this talk, putting up all this obviously simplified Danish on PowerPoint, and she's very carefully not saying that what she's seeing is simplification, or to the extent that she has to actually own up to it. She says it with an apology and is nervously looking at all the Creolists in the room. That's stupid. Not of her. That's stupid of us. It's ridiculous that she feels so uncomfortable saying that somebody who was not using the verbal morphology of Danish is simplifying the damn language. It's not right. Actually, it was listening to that particular talk that was one of the sparks that became this book, because I thought it's getting to the point where young people are coming into this field and being prevented from thinking. That is not the way it should be. And it's not the way it's going to be.
2: Well, there's a lot of food for thought in the book. I can can agree with that. Uh, What are your next moves with this book? Uh, And what other projects have you got on the horizon?
1: Well, I'm going to be giving a whole lot more interviews like this. (laughs) I'm going to be publishing, publicizing them on social media. I consider the book to be the crown jewel of my effort here because it will last as a physical object and I'll always be able to pass it. Around. But at this point, I'm trying to decide what kind of paper I'm going to write that will be my first quantificational one because it's become clear that a lot of linguists, especially newer ones coming in, Don't think you've said anything unless you've used some statistics and some number crunching. I don't particularly like numbers. I respect them, but it's not my style. But you know, if I sat here and just rubbed my eyes and boohooed that people are expecting something of me that I can't do, well, you know what? That wouldn't be me. And so I am going to have to get out there and play ball and do something numerical which will then be rejected because it will be said that I've picked the wrong features. All of a sudden, everybody will want to know what a feature is and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the fight will go on. But I've come to realize that I need to play the game the way a lot of people think it needs to be played. So, you know, check up on me in a couple of years and I'll have some new perspectives. But yeah, I'm going to keep publicizing this book because I want it to be that rare thing, which is a book about linguistics written in an academic vein, that linguists actually read, and I'm not exempting myself. We linguists read articles. We don't like to read books, and I have become one of those people over the past 10 years in particular. You get busy. I kept this book relatively short because I would like, especially historical linguists and language contact people, to actually sit down and read it. Not on the beach, but to actually read each chapter because I really do think that another hoax is being put over the linguistics community about creoles not coming from pigeons but you can't get the facts across without laying them out on pages and that's what i tried to do so we'll see
2: well i hope i hope it does kickstart a creole debate because it sounds like it's needed and certainly some replies from the scholars that you've criticized amply in this uh, in this podcast and in your book <laughs> um will be pretty interesting to to read and hear oh they will <laughs> thank you very much john mcwater for making the time to talk about your book today Thanks for listening to
0: New Books in Language, a podcast on the New Books Network.